everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer Speaks. For those of you that are new to us, um, Alzheimer Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We believe that by joining forces, sharing knowledge, and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we're going to be able to remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those continue to live with purpose. Together, we believe everybody has something to say and something to teach and something to learn. And so these are just informal conversations um, to help raise awareness and connect you to wonderful resources and um, experiences that people have gone through. At our core here at Alzheimer's Speaks, we believe that collaboration is the only way we're going to win this battle against dementia. And we know that it's working because of all of your likes and clicks and shares of our resources. Each of you has had a huge impact on raising awareness for Alzheimer's Speaks profile by sharing our information. So I just want to thank you all for that. You have made us the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's, according to ShareCare and Dr. Oz. So we would encourage you to please continue to click away and share with your Facebook uh, friends, your Twitter tribes, your um, LinkedIn colleagues, and all the other social medias (laughs) that we have to choose from today. We, again, greatly appreciate it. We believe that we can give hope to people in a world that is driven by fear. And together we can teach people how to live with this disease and not as the disease. Um, You might also uh, be somebody who has a story to tell, um, a business that provides services, or maybe you've written a book or a screenplay. Um, You know, we've had so many people um, on this show. Uh, It might be maybe you're living with the disease and want your story to be told or a family member which is our guest today, um, or maybe you're a researcher. If so, um, you know, just contact me, and uh, you can do that through alzheimerspeaks.com, and then go to the big contact button and, um, you know, reach out to me, and we'll we'll chat and kind of see where to go from there because we'd love, love to have you on the show. Um, uh, before I introduce our guest, who I'm really excited um to, to uh, have this conversation with. I just want to give a shout out to um, FreshBooks.com. Um, they are basically uh, an accounting software. And I know we're past uh, tax season, but there's uh, still a few of you out there, me included, that filed extensions. <laughs> and so it's not too late to get your 30-day trial. Just go to GoFreshBooks.com forward slash live. And then others in our audience I know are... Um, like to read but just don't have the time. And so audible.com is a great place to be able to go and download an Audible book. Um, And there we also have a nice trial set up for you. And you can just go to audibletrial.com 
forward slash social. So let's go ahead and introduce our guest today. I was lucky enough to meet her when I was speaking out in Seattle, and I, I always love, you know, talking with my audience. And um, this woman's name is Dee Dee Footer, and she's originally from Maine, but she moved to Seattle a few years after college and then worked um, in property management for about 18 years. And then when her father got diagnosed with Alzheimer's, she quit her job and moved to Florida to care for him. And that's where her interest in elder care and caring for those with Alzheimer's um, sprouted its passion. Dee Dee is in the process of setting up an activity for seniors called Edie's Ice Cream Social Club in honor of her dad, or Eddie's. And it's a gathering for ice cream um, at a local ice cream place for seniors with or without Alzheimer's disease. So welcome, Dee Dee. How are you today? I'm just great. Thank you for having me, Lori. And I'm sorry I, I said Edie's instead of um, Eddie's. Um, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> my, my apologies. There's an Edie's ice cream, though. Yep, yep. That's what I was, that must have been what I was thinking there. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'd like to do is just start out um, with the, the first question of, of asking you, um, what made you decide to take care of your father um, opposed to, you've got, you know, um, from talking, it sounds like I think it's five or six other siblings, Six. Um, six. So, so I think, why well, you? I think how it really started was the first year that he could not be alone or he should, he, he needed some attention. We were all trying to spread ourselves out and let him have a, a, a winter down in Florida versus up in Maine. And it was just a struggle trying to coordinate everything with, with six other people. And we all took turns as, as we could. And it was just, uh, there were always gaps and it was very frustrating. And I have to say that I wasn't giving giving my job 100% either because I was always straddling this fence and always talking to somebody in my family about what are we going to do. And then uh, I had gone and spent my time in Maine with him. And he's like, I'm going to die a slow death up here in the in the cold for winter because, you know, he was supposed to stay up in Maine with one of my sisters. And I said to another sister, and she hates when I say this, I told her, I said, I think I'm going to quit my job and go live in Florida with dad for the, just for the winter. And within 24 hours, without saying a word to him, he called me and he said, I can't believe you are going to do this for me. He goes, I just am so excited. And she gets mad when I say it, but I I think that when you throw things out there in the universe, they they take hold and what is supposed to be is to be. And uh, I'm I'm very grateful for her saying that to him. Well, that that is an interesting twist um, to things. and and were your what was the response from your siblings? I'm I'm um, gathering that it was that they were in favor of that since they shared the news with your dad, or at least well, one they, did. <laughs> I'd, I'd say we were a very close family. We're seven and eight years. They everyone else has either they either had children in, at the end of high school, college, or grandchildren that they were caring for. And honestly, I was I wasn't attached, and um, I really was the only person that really could uproot myself. And they were very, very grateful. I mean, I, I'm very fortunate because they have been there for me uh, at times, as most people go through when they're caregiving for somebody. It's, there's always a challenge within the family, and ours was that way mm-hmm. <laughs> with a variety of opinions. Yep. And, uh, but, I mean, they were definitely grateful and appreciated that I did do this for Dad. Well, that's nice because not all, all families have that feeling. You know, some... Um, some get jealous, uh, some want to do it, but don't want to do it, but afraid to have a, you know, an underlying reason, um, you know, to be there. And I, I've seen families, 
get uh, get very split over this. So it's nice to hear when everyone's in agreement um, and appreciative because it is, it's a huge, huge upheaval in your life. Um, not only to, de- to dedicate to care for somebody, but then to uproot your life and have to move across the country to do it is a whole nother, whole nother piece of work on top of that. Um, well, you know, well, so that is true. And I have to say that I never knew I was really rooted into a community until I decided to leave. And it was uh, very challenging to leave, but um, it was, Definitely worth it, Laurie. Oh, that's good. Can you tell us what some of the early signs were that your dad had? Um, what, and was it Alzheimer's specific or um, as far as his dementia? I think and initially it was all just we blamed a lot on the loss of my mother. My mother died in 2001, and he was her caregiver, so it was just kind of the stress and the grief that he was going through. And then he had... Uh, dated this other woman for a couple of years and then she died unexpectedly. So once again, he was suffering loss. So his memory was kind of iffy. And then a hurricane hit in 2004 and he lost his home and was displaced. And it was, uh, so all these little things that we thought were nothing were just grief and loss really added up to a lot of all of a sudden it's like he was really obsessed with certain things like with finances and with them. Well, and I hate to say this because this is really weird, but he discussed things he would never talk about, like his bowels or things like that, uh, that he was obsessed with. But one day when what finally clinched it for me, he was visiting me in Seattle and we had gone to Arizona first and I was getting ready to take him to the airport and he stopped me. He said, what kind of currency do they leave, use in London? And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, it's 6 a.m. and I haven't had coffee yet. And he's like, what kind of currency do they use in London? And I said, I don't know, the pound. He goes, well, how did we pay for things when we were there? I said, I don't know, my credit card? I don't know, my debit card, Dad. And I, I said, why? And he goes, because I don't have one of those things. And I'm going to London in one hour, and I don't know how I'm going to pay for anything. And I said, going to London? You're mm-hmm. not going to London. And he goes, like, I'm not. Well, then where am I going? And he said, you're going to Florida. And then the pieces all fit together. I called some friends in Arizona, and they said, well, he got lost in that restaurant. We were in there, and he sat down with some friends. And I was in the bathroom, and they were watching, you know, and they were like, he said, I found him at a table. And I went over and said, hey, Eddie, would you like to join us at our table? And he said, sure, great. He's like, those were nice people. And he goes, I think they like me too. (laughs) (laughs) And you hear all these stories of him getting lost and, you know, when Florida had that hurricane, a lot of signs were down. So he got lost a lot, but, you know, it was down signs. It was, he went to the West Coast versus the East Coast. So, But putting all the pieces together from everyone's story, then it really fit. And, I, you know, that's when I called his doctor, and my sister got him into one in Maine and got him diagnosed. Well, and it is interesting because a lot of times uh, families and friends don't share those stories but we, it, it's really, really difficult to, to piece things together when we don't share them. And, um, you know, I, I think that it's important, you know, and, and people worry about that fine line between dignity and respect and, right. and safety. And I think we have to all just learn to accept where everybody is authentically and not judge it, but be honest because we can't really help people if we're not honest um, with it. And um, there's so many people that want to help, um, but we have to, we all have to be able to connect the dots and work together because this is not something anybody can do alone. 
Um, we need resources. We need support. We need respite, um, and as well as the person with dementia. You know, we're, we're equal partners in this, as far as I'm concerned. Um, can you tell our audience how did you cope with frustrations of the earlier phases of repetition? Of repetition that is something that so many people struggle with. So, did you have a, a good sleep? Did you did you sleep well? So, how did you sleep last night? any sleep last night, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, What I did, um, because it really got a, that was a standard every morning. I got up and had coffee with him. And it was really, he always would say, this is my favorite time of morning, having a cup of coffee with you. And uh, it was enjoyable, but he did ask that question probably sometimes 30 times in in a sitting. And so what I would do is actually get up a little ahead of him if I could, which I, I usually did get up ahead of him. And then I always made sure I had muffins and coffee for him. But I would have my own coffee. I might call one of my sisters. I was, we all talk in the morning mostly anyway. So I would just have a normal conversation with somebody else or sit by myself and have time mm-hmm. and to cope with that. But um, that was, those were the tougher times. And as you said, I, I had a community full of wonderful people who helped me. But that was my deal. I had to have a little alone time. Well, and that's great that you recognize that because that's, I think, one of the problems so many people don't kind of take that respite for themselves um, to kind of refill and balance out. And and it's okay, you know, to be able to do that. So that was really a healthy decision. How did, did, did you always do that? And was that just a normal thing? Or was that something you said, ah, I need an out and um, really had to kind of force that? I know you said you guys usually chatted and stuff, but... Um, a lot of times when we're giving care, we, we kind of throw old ways aside and we start a new pattern. And so I'm just curious for you if, um, if that was an original pattern that you just kept and you found it resourceful or if it's something that you started after the fact because of frustration or kind of where, where you fell in that, that boundary there. Well, actually, you know, when my mother was in the final stages of, of um, cancer, I spent a lot of time in Maine, and he always brought us in coffee every morning. So it became a, a ritual for me with my mom, and I then from that point always relished a cup of coffee in the morning and kind of in her honor. And I still do that. I, I think of her in the mornings. And um, with after she passed away, he asked me if I would call and check in on him because mm-hmm. I talked to my mother every day. And, and so I called him almost every day until I looked at them, obviously, and I would get up and have my cup of coffee and usually call him every day. So it was a ritual that I had instilled for years prior to that. But when he was present, it was harder. But I went back to I still always had a little time to myself in the mornings before I got my day going. And I used to get up around 5 so I could have that conversation with him in the morning. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. But it, so it was something I had established, but uh, I went back to it. Okay. Um did you find that there were, you know, questions or actions that your dad um, did in terms of change of behavior that was really frustrating or difficult? Oh, <laughs> and for the most part, my dad was very pleasant. But uh, when he would be looking for for, the, for it, and you'd look for it for a long time, is this it? I'm like, he'd be like, no, that's not it. Um, you would... I have to say that I had I had a string full of neighbors that I would call for support and family. And um, when he got really kind of angry, if he thought I was poisoning him, I, there was one neighbor in particular that I could call, and she was very calming to him. She was a very calming person. And then with other issues, 
I, first of all, I, um, after struggling on my own for a long time, everyone kept on telling me to call this one woman and this name came up so many times. I finally said, I have to call her. And it was Donna True from the Alzheimer's Association down in uh, South Florida. And I used to call her God because she so saved me. And she brought together a group of people for me. A, a guy came out and put a tag on my dad or a GPS bracelet on him from the sheriff's department. Another woman, Laura, came out and did an assessment. And, and she was somebody that addressed some needs that I had because my father was not incontinent at that point, but he was clearly starting to dribble and not make it to the bathroom. And my thing was becoming at peace with picking up pee because mm-hmm. it was it was like a constant, like, oh, my gosh, I would tell my nieces, please teach your boys to sit down on the toilet. But it's, uh, but those little things of like, I, I just wanted to make sure he was okay. And I didn't know how to address that with him because he was always very private about those things. And my gosh, this woman, Laura, just opened up my world. It's just like, Eddie, how do you feel about this? Do you have a problem going to the bathroom? Is it, are you just waiting too long? Or are you forgetting to go? And, and he really opened up to her and it helped me. And then we went shopping mm-hmm. for the necessary items and, uh, then there was a woman, Crystal, who came out and she did an assessment and got us into a, an adult day club to give me a break because, um, well, not just to give me a break. I have to say that it really stimulated him and I thought I could do it on my own and I really, you really can't. And although I had a group of, of neighbors, we lived in a 55 plus community, just going to this day club a couple times a week, he would, he would come home and he would be like, he would be chatty Kathy in a sense, and he would just go on about all the things that he did that day and how he answered some trivia questions correctly. And and another side of him came out that I didn't know. I, he was always a nice and kind man, but the compassion that I saw in him, and he's like, oh, we bowled today. And he goes, well, it really wasn't bowling. You know, it was really easy. <laughs> but he said, you know, some of these people can't do anything. And they really, when to see them achieve that goal was really fun to watch. And so for me, that, that meant the world. And, and I have to tell you, it was like a long 22-minute ride <laughs> to that place. But um, it was that, that helped me out a lot, just having a couple days break. And it, I really didn't do much except probably clean because I couldn't clean with him in the house. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and, why, vacuum, and why is it that you couldn't clean with him? The, I think the noise bothered him, but he followed me around. Mm-hmm. And with the, he never liked the vacuum cleaner <laughs> growing up. We always had to, we vacuumed every day and we always had to have the vacuuming done before he got home. So, okay. I don't know. It was maybe in my head that I strolled it not to vacuum when he was at home, but it, it did bother. It did seem to disturb him and he'd want to help. And it always took a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. I think for me, it was just, I could do it and then it'd be done with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. Um, you know, you had talked about all these great support, um, you know, that Donna True, you know, helped you with mm-hmm. with the, the Alzheimer's Association down in Florida. Um, were there some specific, like, personal care issues that were just hard to deal with? I know a lot of times families struggle with, you know, um, toileting, showering, you know, just the basic grooming stuff. Was that Was that difficult for you, or how did you handle those types of things? Well, it was because my father, as I said, was very private growing up in nine of us in a house. He was the only one that had privacy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we you never went into the bathroom with him, but yet everyone was in a bathroom at the same time, it seemed. But he, um, 
I actually just had to look at things differently and treat him as a, not as my father. I really had, I had met this guy once who was a surgeon. He just said, when people came into the ER, he said, I don't look at their faces. I really don't look at it. I just look at it as a part. Mm -hmm. And that did help me. He was able, initially he was able to shower himself. I would just be there for him. And, but then putting on clothes was harder. But uh, one of my neighbors who had uh, gone through prostate cancer, oddly enough, he helped me. Dad actually read an article in a newspaper. It was an op-ed thing and he had written in and he recognized that it was this friend of ours, Jack. And he said, do you think I could talk to him about, about what he went through? And because dad was concerned, he wasn't sure why he was going to the bathroom in his pants at Mm -hmm. all. So he, he sought out this guy, one of our neighbors, and he was a younger guy. I mean, and um, I mean, younger, meaning like he's in his late fifties or 60, maybe, I don't remember how old he is, but uh, he, he came down and he was so, so wonderful to dad. And he just went through this whole thing with my dad. And he goes, you know what, Ed, I just think that that all in one is just so much easier than dealing with those pads. And, and my dad was like, Diddy, can we go get some? And so (laughs) I really was, he was receptive and open to a lot of things, but it was hard eventually when I had to do a lot more of the, the personal care and the showering, I actually felt that gloves were my savior. Um, there was something that made gloves clinical mm-hmm. and not personal. And uh, God forbid if, if my gloves were missing because it, it really changed it. And I think it changed it for my dad as well, because I think in our, just how we are raised in this world, when you go to the hospital or have a doctor's appointment, anyone clinical has gloves on. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's, that made him think it was more clinical as well and not personal. And that's, there were only times, those are some times when I actually would know that he recognized me if not, if I had gloves on or not. But um, when I was toileting him, there were times when he wasn't modest. And then all of a sudden he would look at me and realize it was, in my opinion, mm-hmm. I would re- he would realize that it's me and he would cover himself. Mm-hmm. But uh, he liked being clean and uh, I'm very thankful for that. And yeah. it's one of the things he said to me when he was still with it. He said, you know, can you please always make sure that I'm clean. I never want to smell. So promise me you're never going to let me smell. Mm-hmm. And so I could reason with them, even though they say you can't reason with them. I would say, dad, you know, he'd say, I'd already took a shower. I'm like, well, you know what? You, you told me to always let you know if you smelled and you smell a little bit right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to smell. <laughs> so yep. I could, uh, I could get him in the shower and I can tell you that he loved a shower. And even in the end, when hospice said they couldn't, they were only going to give him um, bed baths. I found a way to give him a, a bath in the shower, shower him in the shower. And they eventually started doing the same thing because I said, you know, he loved it. And the woman that showered him said, oh my gosh, he loves this. Mm-hmm. He just loved the hot water coming down on him. And uh, I always warmed the room and warmed a towel for him. He just didn't like being cold. And well, I think that was half does? of the reason why he didn't like the showers because <laughs> he didn't like being cold. Well, and, and grooming can be such a big issue, and, and that was really wise to, you know, get everything warm and comfortable for him. Um, a lot of times um, people don't do that. They just throw them in the shower, they turn it on, it hits their head. You know, they're not warmed up. The room's not warm. If they're sitting in a seat, it's not warm. The towels aren't. I mean, all those things. And then, you know, just if you start with the water on the feet first, 
and right. then go up. It's not as scary. My mom used to love to take a shower and and then it got to the point it scared her. She didn't know what it was anymore. And so I think those little tricks are so powerful and, and you know, they're respectful um, of what people's needs are. And it just, it makes it much more enjoyable for everybody involved in the process instead of a fight. Um, yeah, I didn't, and I, I have to say that I probably wasn't always starting at the feet, but that's a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, it worked for your dad. I I know um, in the nursing home, one of the uh, administrators asked me, because I had uh, asked for a, a rain shower head that I would donate those to the facility because it was just easier for people to use and adjust um, versus the overhead, you know, shower. Right. And, um, you know, we were talking and he said, what else would you like? And I said, aromatherapy, you know, different coloring that's more calm. I'd love music pumped in. I'd like heated floors and heated towel bars, you know, and, um, you know, he asked why. And I'm like, it, it's all about comfort. You know, it's, it's all about taking the scary out and, um, you know, making it more spa-like and natural and calming versus the shock to the system all the time. And those little things make huge, huge differences for people. I mean, they do for us. You know, when we go to a spa, I mean, we just all relax. And a person with dementia isn't any different, you know. So, um, oh, and it's, and it's such a traumatic event. You know, I you know I used to, I hate to say, judge people at the, at, you know, the memory care home where my dad was. He spent the last year there. But it was one of those things where it was so traumatic. This one woman, and she, God love her, she was just in love but she smelled sometimes to high heaven and there was only one woman there that she would let shower her. Mm-hmm. And she would think, I don't know why they're trying to do this to me because I just showered. I shower every morning when I get up and it's like, well, I, I was there a lot. So I know that she didn't shower every day when she got up, but I know that they did try. And it's one of those things where you, it's traumatic for them. And I think sometimes families don't understand what with staff at these homes go through. Yeah. And it's not because of the people are awful by any means. It's just that, both sides there's a there's a gap and you know I knew my father really well I knew the tricks you know and I was able to be there and to make him clean you know to help him and help guide anyone who was there but sometimes it's it's harder because if you're not around them enough in those earlier phases so you pick up cues from them it, it's harder to just jump in but well, you know I, I think it's uh and some of it can be tone of voice, you know, an mm-hmm. approach. All of those things come into play, too, versus, come on, get over here, um, you know, versus, you know, saying something that's a little bit more calm and respectful. What was mm-hmm. the typical day like for you? Oh, when I was uh, at his house, I was very regimented. <laughs> I never thought I was a routine person, but I really had to become a routine. Like I said, I got up and had my coffee, but we had coffee first thing in the morning. We... um always had a muffin initially. I made all brand muffins because I have to say that that's a very important thing to make sure they get their fiber with uh, raspberries. And I, I'm, I'm probably a little bit of a healthy, healthy nut type person. But uh, then I would cook him a breakfast with um, either oatmeal and always eggs because he needed protein. But we had a snack at 10. Uh, we walked my dog a lot. At noon, we ate lunch. And then we went to the swimming pool with a group of people. He sometimes swam, sometimes didn't. Mm-hmm. He actually coached me swimming, which he <laughs> he would really be serious about it. And I, I really, I tried to take lessons from him. I never could swim properly. But he, he liked doing those things. But we, we made sure, I made sure I got out with the neighbors a lot. 
And then at night, well, we always went for a walk at three o'clock because I had a dog. And um, one of my neighbors had a Bichon like mine. And so she was almost 90. And I walked her Bichon for her because she couldn't. And so sometimes I would go and take her dog and dad would stay there with her and they would talk about the war. She'd put on Frank Sinatra music and um, they might do a puzzle together, but they would sit and laugh and have such a fun time. And then at night we uh, had dinner at six and one of um, dad was seeing this woman, Maddie, who was my godsend. We shared cooking responsibilities. If we cooked, we cleaned, we'd get a complete night off otherwise. And then we walked at 7.02 p.m. because we met up with some other people, some other neighbors. And we walked three to five miles a day, day, my dad and I did. And so we walked a lot, and that kept him balanced. And then full moon nights, we would uh, a group of neighbors would go to the, to the beach. I lived in Hope Sound, and we would go watch the moon rise. And dad loved it. He just loved watching that moon rise. And I think it was more about just the people around. We had smaller groups. And then one night when we were walking um, – Dad said, do you think that I could invite everyone over for ice cream? <laughs> and I said, sure. He goes, do you think we can? And I said, yeah, let's, let's invite them. So we didn't actually have them over to our house. We went over to this woman, Irene, who, um, whose dog I walked, because she did not like to leave much. And several neighbors, and there were usually five to ten neighbors at least, and more if there were grandkids around, and we would meet most nights for ice cream. After we did our walk, we'd go and reward ourselves with some ice cream. And uh, it was great for some of the people that that never really didn't, that needed that social interaction at that age. Mm-hmm. Because most of the people, dad had lived there for almost 20 years. And I didn't, I would stream in usually jet lagged when I'd go there. And I, you know, I never really got to know people. So dad and I really got to know these people both together in a sense because dad didn't remember them from the past he only remembered them from then and I was just meeting them as well but we just shared and laughed and we had such a fun time together it really uh, it really made my days worth looking forward to as well and and dad would I think that at that point he was normal and he was just eating ice cream like everyone else and and like everyone else and it was, uh, like I said, I had this amazing group of people that were so unconditional. And, and Laura, you made a point earlier in about sharing with, with people and not being embarrassed about the disease because I know that people were, you know, did you don't tell people that dad has Alzheimer's. He'd be so humiliated if you told that. But I told all my neighbors, or there were probably 100 homes in this place, and I, I told people as much as I could. I walked a dog, so I got to know a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you that I wanted to give dad as much independence as I could. And initially he could walk alone on his own. It was, it was kind of a quieter community and it was, it wasn't gated, but if he stayed on this one way and went this one direction, it would give the illusion that it was just a loop and he wouldn't go walk off the sidewalk a certain way. And, you know, people would call me and they'd say, Didi, just want to let you know your dad's out there. I'm like, great. Thanks for letting me know. I, I always knew, mind you, but, um, just knowing that those eyes were out there were great for me. Oh, and, yeah. I mean, it's it's nothing. I, mean, I will tell you that we lost my father a couple of times. We, I, <laughs> no. But one night we were, a group of us were walking. We stopped to talk to somebody, and my dad continued to walk. And there were five or six of us out. And I don't, we, I, to this day, do not know where he was, but it was dusk. So it was getting darker. We're in Florida. We're near a preserve. And I was beside myself, but we all searched the neighborhood, people going out in cars, and 
we finally um he just appeared out of nowhere i don't i don't know where he was but uh i could have called the sheriff's department and i was reaching that point where i would have called them and they would have they had the tracking device on them mm-hmm. on him and they had all of his stats which was great it was just kind of a backup plan for me and i think it's important to have backup plans and um you know, but it was eventually I, I couldn't let him go on his own anymore. He got lost again. He sat in somebody else's porch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all searched again looking for him. And little Irene, 90 years old, out in her Lincoln going all around. Nobody had a cell phone to call back. But uh-huh. it was uh, everyone pulled together. And it was I really just can't say enough about the community I lived in. And they were they were really there for me. And I'm, I'm glad I reached out and I'm glad they accepted and they accepted dad for who he was right then with no ego of like, they would tell past stories, mind you, Oh, your dad, you know, he could hit a ball. You know, he was a golfer and mm-hmm. dad didn't remember golfing with this guy at all. But um, Lenny would tell these wonderful stories and dad would laugh. And, you know, each night they talked about the same thing. They talked about the war, you know, you know, and it was, those are things that comforted him. And I think it's, it's sometimes as a as a child, you think that you have all the answers and you can provide everything. And the reality is I wasn't dad's contemporary. Mm-hmm. I wasn't from the same generation. So I didn't, I didn't know much about World War II. He never talked about it, in fact, growing up. Mm-hmm. And I only really knew that he was actually involved. He was a veteran until after. And I must say, I have to do a little shout out to Tony Reese from uh, the veterans uh, association because he helped me as well in guiding me through some getting assistance and uh he was just such a great contact for me and and helping some other people i know as well and um but yeah the war became very important to dad kind of some of the past i mean the past obviously was more of his what he knew anymore so having people who understood where he was and where he was coming from was really important for me and it gave me a chance to learn more about him yeah you know well, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, through the the years with your dad, um, were there times when he knew he had dementia, and then other times when he just didn't anymore? And then, how did that affect your relationship? Well, I have to say, my mother told me when she was uh, dying that she said, "He, your dad, your father has Alzheimer's. He's going to have Alzheimer's, and you're going to take care of him." Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my mother used to say these things. Uh, I, there was a time when he finally did, he did know. And I have to say that there were some really sad times when he did know. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at a family gathering one time and he, I wasn't there, but one of my sisters conveyed this story to me. He, it was at a wedding and he went up to somebody who he had loved and admired and they were talking, but the guy kind of was standoffish and walked away after a little bit. And dad recognized that he was, he didn't want to really talk to him anymore. Mm -hmm. And he kind of took off and we were in the Northern Maine woods. So it was one of those things where he took off and my sister went after him and he was crying. And she said, dad, what's wrong? He goes, I'm just a village idiot. Mm. He goes, nobody wants to talk to me anymore. And she says, you're not an, he goes, no, it's, it's obvious people, people don't want to talk to me anymore. And I have to say, when I lived with him and I was with him, we were at another wedding and it was one of those things where it was like, is it you or is it me that they're avoiding? It's Alzheimer's can be really isolating because people do, they're uncomfortable with it. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I went to this lecture in, in Florida, and I wish I could remember the guy's name who said it, but he put it really in <laughs> the disease. is It is a dis-ease in the disease. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, people feel awkward and and they're not sure. They're, well, they're not going to remember mm-hmm. <laughs> or they're not going to. They, they have all on, all these excuses, and it's not excuses. It's what everyone can tolerate and accept. Our egos are big at times, and uh, we all want to re- hang on to the past a lot. And it's it's hard if you are trying to do that, but it, it was isolating. I mean, I had to let go of a lot uh, to just be in that world with Dad. But I, I saw it with other people. I saw it with family. And, and, yeah, I did resent. I mean, family, yeah, we may have gotten along on some levels, but there were times when it was really stressful because they didn't understand what I was going through for one, but uh, they didn't see the changes on a regular basis. And I, I have a, a friend out here in Seattle who's, who has, whose husband has Alzheimer's and he's in a memory care home now, but you know, her, she would tell me, Diddy, they think he's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I finally would say, Diddy, he's fine. I just talked to him. He sounds great. And it's amazing how they can seem so with it and so together and, you know, what they don't know is that after they'd get off the phone, you're like, who the hell was that anyway? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it was, uh, they just always wanted me to buck up. But it is hard when they, they recognize a little bit. And then when he didn't, I, I don't know if he ever really didn't know. Because I remember one of the last probably two or three weeks, it, well, it was Thanksgiving, and he died on on uh, December 20th. So it was about a month before he said to me, I said, Dad, what's wrong? Because he was really pensive. And um, he said, I'm just lost. And he didn't say much. In the end, he stopped talking a lot. And um, he said very few words, but he, I, I actually really didn't expect him to respond. But he said, I'm just lost. And so I think that he knew that something was there. But I think there's a, a phase that they get calmer and accept things a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's several phases of, of Alzheimer's and, you know, some are fun and some are, are crazy, really crazy in the middle of the night. And some are um, sad. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, it can be very sad when they, they feel all alone and isolated and, you know, there's odd behavior. I mean, there's just odd behavior sometimes. And I, I think that one thing. I learned because I look at people because it's easy. I knew my dad. I knew his, his foundation. I knew what he was like. But going into a home where you see all these different people, and they're mm-hmm. crazy people, you know, crazy, Lori. <laughs> <laughs> all these crazy behaviors, you know. One place I used to I used to tell Donna, I said, oh, my God, I feel like I'm in the land of the misfits. Mm-hmm. You know, one woman was always screaming, I love you, 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 I love you. And, and meanwhile, there's another guy that's pounding on his, on the table and it's banging and banging and banging. And then somebody else is screaming, shut up, shut up. And you're like, oh my God. And this was in a place that I, I fortunately pulled my dad out of, mind you. But it would be like, oh my gosh. And the look on my father's face would be like, what the hell did you do to me? And, and then one day when that lady was screaming that, I said, I love you too. And she stopped and she goes, you do? I said, yes, I do. I love you. And she goes, thank you. And she stopped screaming it. Aww. And it was, uh, I think that they, you don't know anyone. Like there was a guy that used to blow his nose. He'd take his finger on the side of his nose and blow with one nostril. And 
and he looked like a runner for one. But I said, was he a runner? And someone was like, yeah, he was a runner. How do you know? Like the way he's blowing his nose. And I think when you start looking at them as people who used to be just like us, they were active in their communities. They were mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, you know, and you really look at what they did. I mean, a guy named Frank used to go open up all the doors. He'd say, he'd open up the door and he'd say, you doing okay in here? <laughs> You're like, yep. And uh, he was a security guard during World War II, guard during World War II. And, you know, one day he opened up my door. And this was only after lunch because I usually was out in the main room with my, with my dad and the others. But he opened up the door and he goes, you got your dog here today? Because he couldn't see her. And that's where I think when people say they don't know you, they don't even know you. And I'm like, that's crazy because my, all of these people in this home knew me. Mm-hmm. They didn't know my name. They knew that I had a dog, and they often asked for my dog. They um, they recognized me when I came in, but the reality is that I didn't care that they didn't know my name. And and actually, it was really quite liberating because I didn't. Nobody worried about. Nobody asked me about my past or my future or, you know, it was nothing. It was just easy to be in the moment and laugh and have fun and, you know, there's always a lot of music playing and. Uh, I like to dance and I dance like Elaine from Seinfeld. So it was, (laughs) they didn't care. We just had fun. And I have to say that that's, you know, I did the same with my group of neighbors. We'd put on a lot of music and we'd sing and we'd dance and on our walks, we would just be goofy. And, and the reality is that they're really just people and it's a disease that takes some of them away, a little bit of them away, but there's still, there's always more to learn and more to grow with. You know, it's, um, my dad was just, I don't think the first two years that I took care of him, there wasn't a night that went by that he didn't thank me for taking care of him. Mm-hmm. And when he couldn't talk any longer, he talked with his eyes and he's just, he might hold my hand a certain way, but he was, he was very grateful as were most of these people that, that I didn't even know, you know, some days my name changes. They did decide to call me a different name. I didn't really care. And, uh, but they did know me often. And, you know, one guy, he was, he was just larger than life. He was, um, he was an attorney. He actually gave me good legal advice. <laughs> and uh, he came in and he would, he would, he was bothered him that my dad didn't talk, mm-hmm. but I helped him. I, I made a video with him on an iPhone and sent it to his daughter. And he came up to me the next day. He goes, you're not going to believe that video that we sent. He goes, that my daughter and my wife came in last night because of that video. So thank you. You know, and uh, they came in most nights anyway, but he, he did know and he did remember and, you know, they, he liked learning new things. He liked learning about this whole technology thing. Uh And um, I just feel like I, I was surrounded by all these people, but even, you know, people who didn't know me, there was a guy there. He was a younger guy who had been in 9-11. He was a fireman. And he was, um, I don't know if he had Alzheimer's or what kind of dementia that he had, but every day he'd come up to me and he'd, he'd sit or stand next to me so I could scratch his back. I used to call him an old cat. He was just like a cat and liked his back scratched. And he'd come up <laughs> and, and want his back scratched by me. So I think that there's a level that they don't remember, but there is a lot that they do know, in my opinion. And I'm not scientific. I'm mm-hmm. more uh, warm and fuzzy. Yeah, I'm I'm a warm and fuzzy too. I I just, you know, and I I liked what you said about, you know, sometimes he couldn't say my name, but 
you could see the recognition in maybe the squeeze of his hand or his, his eye contact and and you know but you have to be looking for those things to see those so i think that that that's really great because as they progress those things become incredibly more important um you know when we're kind of going through our day we don't even realize all the unconscious things we're taking in or or putting out um, but with dementia, it's, it's very important to be aware of them because so many times they react to our reactions. And oh. um, <laughs> That's when you have a dog that helps show you those things. <laughs> Do you want to give us an example? Well, I think that, um, you know, I, I lived out in Seattle, so I have to tell you that I was around a lot of people in the healing arts, so I had people tell me a lot of different things in Reiki. So I do believe, but one, one woman actually told me that uh, Ellie just reminded me that Ellie fed off of my energy. My Ellie is my dog. And um, if I was kind of anxious, she would be anxious and act a certain way. But she was actually a really calm dog. And sometimes she'd look at me if I was in a, you know, because sometimes it's really hard <laughs> as, a, as a daughter or just it, it got frustrating with sometimes the redundancy or just the looking for things or the, you know, I might be up on in the middle of the night looking for large screen TVs for my dad with him. Mm -hmm. uh, so all those things. And um, she would give me a look that's like, chill out, you know, give him a break. But she would go sit with him and they would, it's like they would team up on me and look at me like, why are you so upset? But he read emotions much like a, an animal. And I don't, I'm not comparing them to a dog, but I think that they, read emotions from people because he was really spot on recognizing naughty and nice. And, you know, one night he's like, why are you so bitter toward me? And I'm like, I'm not bitter towards you. And he goes, you are bitter towards me. And I'm like, you know what? You're right, dad. I am. And I don't know why I am. I'm just, maybe it's just a mood I'm in, but he did recognize it. So I, from that point on, I really tried to keep my feelings in check and take a deep breath and say, you know what? It's, it's temporary. And one of my friends used to tell me this about a lot of things in life. And he's, uh, he's from India. So he's from a different culture. And he said, everything is temporary, you know, happiness, sadness, good times, bad times, you know, and it's, um, and it was a good reminder, because when I was struggling in that moment, it's like, you know, it's temporary. Mm -hmm. This isn't going to be forever. This is just a temporary time in my life. Yep. And it breaking it down into a tiny part was easier for me to deal with than and thinking, oh my gosh, I, I my hat's off to, um, I had volunteered at Children's Hospital for almost 20 years and uh, seeing all these parents with, with kids with disabilities and the struggles that they must go through. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm taking this on later in my life. You know, dad lived a wonderful life. He was very fortunate. And I, I just, my hats go off to those people who have children, special needs. And it's a, it's a labor of love, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think breaking it down really helped me. And um, as I said, I did volunteer for 20 years and encountered some wonderful kids. And one in particular would had a heart transplant. And at one point, he was—I was at his house, and his parents had—he was had little siblings, and they were fighting. And he he backed away. And I said, "Oh, you know," I said, "That's I'm really proud of you." And he goes, "Dee it's really not fair. I'm older and wiser." <laughs> so he goes, <laughs> "It's not a fair battle, is it?" Because if I won, how how would I feel? Wow, I, I, I won against little kids. Mm -hmm. And he was 13 or 14 at the time, and he was just wise beyond his years. And um, and I when I struggled with Dad in those battles of when I'd get frustrated because I was tired and wanted to go back to sleep, I would come 
that would pop in my head and I'd say, it's not fair. You are fully there. He is not. Give him a break, mm-hmm. you know. Yep. And, uh, you know, that was uh, one thing that really helped me. Old Jake came to came to play, and uh, it was kind of that, that training from kids that I had met along the way, either babysitting or or through Children's Hospital and or my nieces and nephews and just kind of using my imagination. And it was um, – it was fun, actually. I have to say that I, I actually had a lot of fun, and I'm probably the faulty camera in my mind makes me forget a lot of the negative stuff. But there, there were definitely times, um, as I said, mostly in the middle of the night that were hard. When he'd wake up and he'd be looking for something that I had stolen, and um, you know, I might call one of my siblings because I think, well, it's five o'clock. I've been up for two hours. It's fair game. Mm-hmm. They can they can talk to me and or talk to him and get out of this house and don't steal everything with you. And, you know, and it was those moments that I would, uh, obviously I always set the coffee to brew at night. So I just had to push a button mm-hmm. and keep it easy in the morning. And I'd push that button and I would um, put music on and I put on Roger Whitaker, which I don't even know where it came from, but dad liked that CD. And he'd be like, all of a sudden he'd go from, you know, being really calling me a lot of different names to, um, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just going to have a cup of coffee. And well, what are you listening to? I said, Oh, Roger. And he goes, well, do you mind if I sit down and have a cup of coffee and listen to I'm like, not at all. Because my sister would be like, are you scared? Are you worried that he's going to hurt you? And I'm like, I'm not worried that he's going to hurt me. I'm not scared. I mean, I'm tired, Mm -hmm. but I'm not scared. I mean, he hit me once and, um, and I have to say, I'm not saying victim, but I, I will say it was my fault because I, it's one of those moments when I forgot Jake's words of, it's not a fair battle. Mm-hmm. He didn't hurt me, and he did apologize. Uh, but I just wanted to go back to sleep, and I'd been up for a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I was actually living with one of my sisters. Okay. And uh, we had moved in with, with her and her husband, and we had her daughter and, and another siblings that would come and help. But it was, uh, it was still, I was the one that slept in a room with him because he couldn't be in a room alone anymore. Mm-hmm. He would get up and wander and... Uh, it was a fall risk, so I slept with him for the last, or slept in the same room with him for the last several months that he was at home. And um, so it was, th- those are challenging times, you know, but we might call, my brother-in-law became Officer Bill, because <laughs> uh-huh. uh, he often wanted to call the police. You know, if we had him in the car, and we had stolen the car, and we had kidnapped him, <laughs> and uh you know, he wanted to talk to the police and he'd like, and sometimes they actually called the police in Northern Maine. You could call the police and they'd come and they'd, they'd play along with it. Mm-hmm. And otherwise you could just have somebody else call and they'd, they'd calm him down. How did, how did you deal with that being, you know, uh, with the police? I mean, if they would show up, um, that can be just so difficult. I know for, for some families and depending on what the response is, you know, from the police or the EMTs that show up, um, you know, that can make or break the situation too. Well, I, I guess, uh, depending on the situation, if we felt it was really, and, and mind you, when I, we called the police, we weren't calling for them to take my father away. Mm-hmm. It was calling them because he wanted, he felt that we had truly kidnapped him. We had stolen, we had stolen this car and we had kidnapped him. Mm-hmm. So seeing that authority, that the a uniform actually made it, it was actually probably, validating his his feelings at that time that he felt unsecure and unsafe mm-hmm. and didn't want to be privy to being 
involved in a crime. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, so we were fortunate that we were able, like I said, it was a small town. So you were able to to say to the 911 operator, listen, this is, we're not scared. We're not, he just wants confirmation that this is, that he's okay and he's not in a stolen car. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'd go along with it. Other times, other people became the police, like my brother-in-law became Officer Bill. Mm-hmm. Mr. Footer, what can I, you know, he just liked respect, you know, okay. so, what do you just give them respect and let them talk, you know, should we, you know, I think everything is fine. We've, we've talked to them. It's going to be okay. And just kind of reassuring from a different person. You know, there was one time when the police did, I don't know if it was police or medics that came. I wasn't there, but my dad was really, um, I had gone to Seattle, but he was staying with my sister and brother in Maine and we were moving up there, but I had taken my dog and myself and we were really what he knew. Mm-hmm. On, and um, he always used to say, where's Dee Dee? Where's Dee Dee? <laughs> and uh, he used to drive me crazy at times because sometimes I was right next to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that he did, he was kicking and he just wanted to go to 1325 high street, which was his childhood home. And you know, it was one of those things where he was lost. He was, when you move people so many times, which we did, we made a lot of mistakes mm-hmm. and um, you learn from your mistakes. They don't, they don't like to be moved a lot yeah. <laughs> and uh, changing and changing and changing is really hard on them. And then for me being the constant figure in his life to then not being there for a week was really hard mm-hmm. on him. And I feel bad that I, I mean, I, I had to have a break, but it was hard on me and then coming back and, you know, they, of course, they took him to the hospital and they, they doled out out and all these other things that didn't really help. Actually, in my opinion, they didn't help. In fact, it made him, it didn't help at the moment. It helped him sleep and he slept the whole next day. Mm-hmm. And, um, eventually people started adding Seroquel in and, you know, in different homes. And I'm not big on the drug scene. I guess there was a little bit that Sometimes they need a little bit for balance. And, you know, he did get put on an antidepressant, which helped some with his moods mm-hmm. because he was sad. I think you asked that earlier. He was sad. And I have to tell you that it was, um, and uh, that, that did help take the edge off. But, you know, he did recognize it. In fact, I want to say one last thing. You know, we were at a doctor's appointment and he was, uh, he had a bad problem with his back and they were going to try to give him a, a cortisone shot. And when he got put on the table, the doctor came in. He was already on the table. And the doctor never looked at my father, never addressed him, never said, hello, Mr. Footer, how are you today? He just um, went on and did his thing, like bing, bang, boom. He talked to me only. And when he left and my dad and I were walking out of the room, he said, so tell me, what did that man look like? Was he black, pink, purple, yellow? What color was he? Mm-hmm. And I, it took me a second, and I'm like, he said he never – he goes, I don't even know what he looked like. And it dawned on me, he never addressed my father. And he just assumed when he saw the Alzheimer's diagnosis on there that dad didn't have a brain anymore, I guess, or couldn't be, didn't deserve being recognized or acknowledged. And I definitely made sure that he didn't go back to that same doctor. And from that point on, it was my mission to make sure that they did, they did address him and treat him with the respect that he deserved. Yeah. He still knew. And, you know, it's, they still know some stuff. I think that they just lose words that they stop, in my opinion, once again, that they, they're worried about saying the wrong things. You know, mm-hmm. there was a guy that 
he he really he didn't have any family. He lived across the hall from my dad, and it's Valentine's Day or the next day. And I said, Ross, tomorrow's Valentine's Day. I said, Are you going to be my Valentine? And he goes, I would I would go I would go to I would go to the cemetery to be your Valentine. And he goes, Sorry, that's the only word I could think of. Uh-huh. And it was like, you know, sometimes people just get, I lose words, you know, it's, you lose words. Yep. And um, I think when you say the wrong things that you worry about what people will think or say, or, you know, it's, I think there's a level that there's pride, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. Um, well, I cannot believe our hours is uh, just about up here. Um, we could talk with you all day. I, I do want you to tell us a bit about your gathering that you're setting up with Eddie's Ice Cream Social Club. Well, and it's in the very preliminary stages, but I uh, several years ago I took part in the Alzheimer's Walk, and I was trying to think of a team name, and then it just dawned on me something. I wanted a positive something positive from my past and experience with dad and it was the ice cream because he was very social and and I realized how important it was for all of these people to gather each night and um, we didn't often go to cafe or uh, ice cream places because we weren't living in an area that was conducive to that but um, I just thought why not do it and when people when I had my walk people were like oh is this a real thing and I thought well maybe someday I will do it so now I've decided to do it I've teamed up with a restaurant in Seattle, or not a restaurant, ice cream shop, uh, Molly Moons, and they are, uh, you know, I'm not just doing it with them, but I'm going to, they're going to be my first one. I've gathered some seniors that I know from a gym that are a little more isolated, but uh, some with, uh, one has Parkinson's, and they're just isolated at this point. They don't have as many social outlets, so I'm just gathering. We'll see how it goes, and one at a time. Seattle is very good with this movement. They have a, a movement called Nomentia, and they do uh, coffee, Alzheimer's cafes, and they have a gardening club. They they do a lot of different things, but this is just something that I've wanted to start a long time ago and just gather people and have ice cream because ice cream knows no age, and uh, it's just something to do and enjoy, and who doesn't like ice cream? And I like to mention it has no no boundaries, no borders. No boundaries, <laughs> and it's, it's something, you know, I hope that I have kids go there as well, and a lot of the people that I'm including, they actually have grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's it's good to bridge those gaps and, and let little kids be around people with dementia or elderly people in general mm-hmm. because, you know, it's our future. And I, I've learned so much from these seniors that I, you know, I, it doesn't know. I don't know. 90 doesn't isn't any different from 30 to me. Mm-hmm. I've met so many people in their 80s and 90s and even hundreds that, I just loved and respected and just loved hearing their stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, that's uh, just hoping to bring some people together and maybe have a little piece of my dad there with me. Oh, that is wonderful. Well, I thank you so much for taking the time to to share your story with us today. Um, I, I know that you've brought a lot of peace to others um, going down this similar path or who are going to be heading down this path as well. So I, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to, to be with us today. And um, as far as contact information, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what is the best best way to get a hold of you, Didi? Uh, probably email at ddfooter at yahoo.com. Okay, wonderful. So again, that's Didi and that's D-E-E-D-E-E and then footer, F-O-O-T-E-R, 
at yahoo.com. Well, I can't, again, thank you enough for being with us, and I, uh, I appreciate your time and keep up the great work. And keep me posted on, on the um, ice cream social that you're doing in your dad's honor as well. I would love to love to know more about that as well. Okay? Great. Thank you so much, Lori. Thank you. Um, for those of you who are new to Alive and Social, you might want to check out uh, a couple of my cohorts here, Apples to Apples. They do a show uh, Mondays at 2.30, and that is a father and son team, Scott and Drew Applebaum, who uh, talk about sports, and you'll find out if father always knows best. And Joan of Art does a show um, typically weekly on Mondays, and um, she investigates and celebrates people who make art. And it's just a fun, fun show. As for us here on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, you can go back and listen to all of our shows, but the most recent ones were we did a um, a new initiatives, Making Great Headway, where we featured Us Against Alzheimer's. Uh, We talked with an author who wrote the book, Diet, Disease, and Dementia. We also talked with another author by the name of Kathy Borey, who um, wrote the book, The Long Hello. And we were also uh, featured to show um, music to our ears for those with dementia and their care partners with Trin Rose Seeley. Our next show, we are going to be talking with some people over in India. So we'll be talking with uh, Salish, and I'm hoping uh, Hindi as well. And then we're also going to have Jennifer Bush on, who we've had on before, who's rolling out a new book. Our um, dementia chats that we did last, we talked about caring roles and how each side sacrifices in the perception um, of that sacrifice. Um, and again, with the Dementia Chats webinars, those are all on our website. Just go to our Initiatives and Projects page, and you will get information on those. Um, our next Dementia Chats will be May 10th at 11 Eastern, 10 Central, 9 a.m. Mountain, 8 Pacific, and 4 p.m. if you're over in London. What else can I tell you? Oh, I have to give a big shout out to the Alzheimer's Alliance of Smith County in Tyler, Texas. I was down there doing a caregiver uh, survival camp, which was just a blast last week. And we uh, also watched um, the movie His Neighbor Phil. It was very, very fun. So if anybody's interested in training or consulting or um, hosting a movie, just let me know. And then last, I'm just going to wrap up with... um, One article that I wrote on dementia on our blog, and you can download it, and it's kind of a takeoff from You Might Be a Redneck, and it's called You Might Be Demented If. Sometimes I wonder who has dementia, myself included. As as care partners, we're the ones that are supposed to still have our executive function, and we're supposed to be intact and compassionate and flexible. We're the ones who are supposed to be logical and understanding. But I found caregiver denial and caregiver burnout looks very much like dementia. Here are some signs um, you might be a care partner in denial or burnout. You might be demented if you've called a person with dementia to remind them of an appointment and then wondered why they didn't show up or forgot all about it. It's because they have a memory problem. You might be demented if you chose to argue with a person with dementia because we all know darn well someone with cognitive impairment can't always process information logically. You might be demented if you've ever asked someone with dementia a complex question and then were surprised when they got angry or looked at you with that blank stare. 
when you know it's best to break down um, steps into one or two simple little tasks. You might be demented if you've snapped at someone for repeating the same thing over and over when you know it's, uh, it's new to them each and every time they ask. You might be demented if you've ever given someone with dementia directions to the bathroom and found out later they got lost or had an accident. And then you got mad because the person um, had these problems and you didn't connect the dots and you know darn well you probably could have avoided the embarrassment of the situation for both them and you by just assisting them to the restroom. You might be demented if you've ever finished a sentence for a person living with dementia because it was taking them way too long to state their thoughts, and then you were surprised when they pulled out of the conversation or got mad at you for seemingly no reason. When we all know most people with dementia need a few extra seconds to process their thoughts, three to seven seconds can make a big difference. You might be demented if you've directed all your questions and comments to the care partner while ignoring the person with dementia and then wondered why the person with dementia was withdrawn and non-responsive, knowing that all people want to feel valued and validated, even those with dementia. You might be demented if you've spoke to a person with memory loss in a loud and slow voice because apparently you can't differentiate the difference between being hard of hearing and dementia. You might be demented if you've told someone with dementia they can't drive anymore and you get into a big fight with them, all because you held tight to not validating their feelings of loss of independence because you were totally focused on your own feelings of guilt and grief. Yeah, sometimes I wonder who really has dementia. Don't you? In the meantime, um, I would like you to think of three simple things when you interact with anybody with dementia. If it's by phone, if it's by video, um, if it's in person. And those are the three simple things that our memory chip teaches us. And you can download that off our website at alzheimerspeaks.com if you go to tools and products. Um, Focus on are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? Have a great day. Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525.